1976, an American satirical film called Network, written by Patty Chayefsky and directed by Sidney Lumet about a fictional television network, UBS, and its struggle with poor ratings, was nominated for 12 Academy Awards. Alan Heim, the picture editor of the film, was one of the nominees. Imagine my surprise when it got all that Academy Award attention. I mean, I knew Patty would get nominated, and I figured Sidney would. But uh, cinematography, editing, I, I was never on my particular radar. I thought the performances were great. There was so much anger that Patty had that runs through that film, and that anger is very contemporary. Aaron Sorkin said that other than George Orwell, no one has been as prophetic about what was going to happen in the future is Paddy Chesky, so. In this episode, Alan Heim, Mark Laub, sound editor, Michael Jacoby and Jeffrey Wolf, the first assistant editor and the apprentice editor at the time, tell their stories about how the film came together and what it was like working with director Sidney Lumet, writer Paddy Chayefsky, and producer Howard Gottfried in the late 70s of New York City. I'm your host, Isabel Siderni, and this is Frame by Frame, a podcast introduction to the most influential and respected film professionals working in New York today, celebrating the iconic films and filmmakers that continue to make New York an essential center of the global film industry. Frame by Frame is brought to you in partnership with Motion Picture Editors Guild and Post New York Alliance, because it's how you finish that counts. Our website is postnewyork.org, and we can be found on Twitter at at PostNY. Our host for today's session is Harbor Picture Company. Early on in his career, Alan Heim collaborated on several films with director Sidney Lumet, including the film Network in 1976. It was around the same time that he began collaborating with directors such as Bob Fosse on the films Lenny and All That Jazz, for which he won an Academy Award for Best Editing. I asked Alan to describe that time in the New York film industry, how he began working with Sidney Lumet, and the trajectory of collaborations that led to his work with Mark Laub, Jeffrey Wolfe, and Michael Jacoby on Network. I met Sidney um, the first time when I was, I was a sound effects editor, and I met Sidney probably on the group. I did a couple of movies for Sidney as a sound effect editor, a palm broker, the group, but we never actually met. We would just sort of say hi, and he would disappear and go do another movie. And on the group, the producer came in uh, at the Max and started making changes in the picture. And though I was fairly new to the business, I knew this was not how things are supposed to go. So I contacted the editor of the film, Ralph Rosenblum, and I told Ralph what was going on. And Sidney was doing The Hill in Europe at that time in England. He stopped production on The Hill. He came back. He started protecting his movies. And as far as I know, after that, he just stayed at mixes all the time. But. He was doing a film called Bye Bye Braverman, or To an Early Grave. I think I think that was the novel, was To an Early Grave. And I met Sidney then, and I was doing the sound for it. And I said, you know, this is a wonderful, funny novel, really terrifically funny. And Sidney said, I want this to be more than a comedy. So my heart stopped, because a good comedy is pretty much unbeatable. So, he was not getting along with his editor, and Sidney asked me if I would do his next project as a picture editor, and of course I would, and that was The Seagull. So I ended up going to Scandinavia and 
when we came back here, we started cutting the movie. And Sidney would stand over my shoulder and kind of tell me where to cut. And well, I learned an enormous amount, not so much about editing, but about performance and making decisions. And Sidney would say, cut here, cut here. And I just sort of sopped it up. I didn't realize that the film was incredibly dull until the night of the premiere, <laughs> which was a black tie premiere. And luckily, men were wearing collars, so you could see their heads toppling over all around me. <laughs> People were really stunned by the dullness of it. It was, you know, Chekhov's play and had great actors. After The Seagull, I, was, I did a film with Lenny with the producer, David Picker, who was a good friend of Sidney's. And we were sitting around in the office one day talking, and I said, why didn't you, you were at the screening, the little screening we had before the premiere. Why didn't you tell Sidney that the film was not very good? I mean, my excuse was I was just starting out. I, what do I know? But why didn't you tell me? He said, you didn't want to hear that. Yeah. And that's what happens a lot when you have a screening, even with your friends. People don't want to tell you negative things. They just don't. He then asked me to immediately start on his next movie, which was also based on a play by Tennessee Williams called The Seven Descents of Myrtle. And Sidney used to do three movies every two years, which is kind of an amazing output. So I went right from one to the other, and Seven Descents of Myrtle had its own problems, and I realized after working with Sidney for a while that I really didn't want to work with him anymore because I didn't want anybody over my shoulder. I pretty much had exhausted that, that mine <laughs> or minefield. But then, uh, of course, he did Serpico and Dog Day Afternoon with Dee Dee Allen, who was an incredible powerhouse in the New York film community. And we all, when I say we, assistants, editors, everybody, we would sit around and say, how would this work with Sidney's tendency to cut over somebody's shoulder and Dee Dee's force? and how that would work out. Well, it turns out that Sidney, for personal reasons, did not want to spend a lot of time in the cutting room. And uh, he had a deadline, tight deadline. So he let Dee Dee cut those two movies. But, and he also learned from her yes. a great deal. I mean, yes. Sidney came from three-camera television where he planned everything in the camera. So he planned all of his edits out. And when we were working on Serpico, there was a sequence where there was a car that backed up somebody who ran into a building, and the cops got out of the car and ran after him. And Sidney had planned it as three edits. And Dee Dee sort of put it together and took it apart and put it together and took it apart. And by the time she was done with it, there were 12 cuts of the car backing up, the guy running in, the car backing up, the guy running in, car, cops running out, a guy slipped and fall. You know, so it was like 12 edits to get to this guy in the building. And Sidney looked at it and he goes, I didn't know you could do that with film. And it was at that point, I think, he started to have a little bit more respect for the editing process and letting editors do their job, which I believe Alan was allowed to do much more yes. so on, on Network. That's Michael Jacoby, who originally served as first assistant editor on Network. He has worked as sound editor and ADR supervisor for directors such as Ron Howard, Mike Nichols, Arthur Penn, Robert Benton, Robert De Niro, and Francis Ford Coppola. Except on The Wiz, he kind of got back to that. <laughs> this I remember true. Dee Dee, and he used to fight for the break. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she, he put his hand on, she put her at, hand on top of it. <laughs> at one point on The Seagull, I, uh, I stepped on the foot pedal while Sidney's foot was on it. Uh, and 
I still don't know if I did it intentionally, but I know I got a lot of pleasure out of it uh, at that point. So, well, anyway, uh, when I was asked to do Network, which I think came out of uh, Patty Chayefsky and Bob Fosse, I read the script and I thought, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll do this. But I also made a very serious vow to myself that if Sydney started telling me where to cut, I was going to leave because I didn't really need that anymore. I had done some other films in between and I felt very comfortable editing. So we shot all the television material in Toronto and Sydney was dazzling the technicians up there because they were Canadian television technicians running the control room and I would talk to them and they would say they'd never seen a director work like that because he was really working at live television, you know, just snapping his fingers and saying cut here, cut there to the camera people. And um, yeah, he knew his lenses. He, he knew his put lenses. A 50 you know. on this, put a 75 on that. Yeah, Sydney knew. Sydney knew an enormous amount about filmmaking. But I felt he never really gave editors any kind of respect until the last few movies. You know, Serpico and Dog Day, I think, are probably his best edited movies. Network was so easy that I, I can't even. <laughs> I mean, obviously, it was a well-edited movie, but I can't really claim much credit for it. It was fairly easy to do. It was it, well planned out. It was well planned. Performances were great. You could always rely on good performances with Sydney. And really, I, I delivered the cut of that film five days after they finished shooting. And it's pretty much the movie that went into the theater. Talk a little bit about the dynamic of working with two people in the room or three people in the room. You know, traditionally we all I've done one person. I've worked with co-directors. I've worked with hmm. a producer in the room, with a writer in the room. That's picture editor Jeffrey Wolf, who originally served as apprentice editor on Network. He's gone on to edit films for directors such as Ted Demi, Arthur Penn, and John Waters. Other film credits include Billy Madison, Holes, and Bachelorette. With a writer-director, well, which is a different dynamic than... Some people have yeah. worked with two camps and lawyers in the room, but that's yeah. Well, yeah. That's picture and sound editor Mark Laub, whose credits as sound editor include Arthur Penn's Little Big Men and The Missouri Breaks. He was part of a crew of sound editors on Network. As I recall, Sydney was in the room, uh, Patty Chayefsky was in the room, and I think Howard Gottfried, Howard Gottfried was, yeah. they were all in the room, and it was not a big room. And uh, <laughs> there were, when, when, when push would come to shove, literally sometimes, um, I would go off with Sydney, and Sydney's way of editing when you know not with Didi and not with Alan but with somebody in my position he would put his hand on the moviola break and he'd go cut here cut here you know so my job was to basically take the things out and assemble them and turn them over to Alan for actual editing um, well uh, since we're speaking about network specifically yeah. you know there was a kind of a, a Yiddishkeit among the the three people Patty and Howard and and, and uh, Sydney so they came into my cutting room and I showed them pretty much the film that we see in the theater. So we did sit around and we did talk and we polished up a couple of things and we dropped part of one scene. The difficulty with Sydney was if you wanted to make a change, you often didn't have something, somebody to cut away to. On The Seagull, my first movie with Sydney, he asked me to remove about three and a half minutes mm -hmm. of a scene this is Chekhov's play, 
which was filmed pretty much in its entirety with 10 major stars. And one of the stars was somebody you don't remember much anymore, but Kathleen Widows. And this was her scene in the film, big scene. And Sidney wanted me to take out, which was about three and a half minutes. And even before, he said, go from here to here. And I said, you know, Sidney, her head's going to spin around like Linda Blair. Uh, and he said, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it, Boychik. He sometimes called me, that means little boy in Yiddish. And uh, he would say, don't worry about it. So I made the cut, and it was terrible. I mean, her head spun around 180 degrees. And I turned to Sid, and I said, we can't do that. And he said, don't worry about it. It's projectionist error. So no, somebody gets it, okay. I said, Sidney, what is projectionist error? And he said, look, people go to the movies once. And in those days, basically people went to the movies once. You didn't have DVDs, you didn't have VHSs. You went to the movies. It was an entertainment form. He said, if you have a cut this bad, they're going to say, the film must have ripped and the projectionist fixed it in the booth. <laughs> but I thought about that. And I said, you know, basically he's right. <laughs> it was a very valuable lesson for me because when you start out as an editor, you, you really worry about things like matching mm -hmm. things. And, and unless people are, you know, sitting down in one take and standing up in the next, which I've had on movies occasionally, basically you just have to, you don't worry about matching. You don't spend a lot of time with that. You try and deal with the story. You try and deal with the emotional content of the material. And if you do something like projectionist error once, okay, you know, and then you on to the next scene. It's no big deal. You don't want to do it. And if you find yourself doing it five times in a movie, the audience is going to walk out. They're going to hate it. Did it stay like that? I don't remember. Uh, I think I figured out a workaround. I asked Alan, Mark, Michael, and Jeffrey to talk about where they edited Network and the New York filmmaking scene at the time. We were editing at Trans Audio, yeah, one of the regular facilities where they were cutting rooms. And that, 254 West 54 Street, right yeah. where Studio 54 is. Yeah, Upstate. above Upstate. Studio 54. That's we where Reds were edit, was edited. I started all that jazz there, but we ran out of room. Hair, did hair there. What happened was, um, as I remember it, they were doing Reds at Sound One. And that film took a lot of people, a lot of people. 65. Really? Okay, 65. I didn't know that, but a lot. That's a lot of people for a cutting. For, yes, considering it is. that I, the most I've ever worked with are three or four people at a given time. We spent about two weeks, Patty and Howard and myself and Sydney, taking out mostly walking people walking shots. in corridors. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. What, what Patty called purple horseshit. Yeah, well, I don't know. Patty wanted, according to Sidney, Patty wanted them. I never heard that expression, but. God, we got rid of the purple horseshit. Yeah. <laughs> Almost all of the walking shots, the purple horseshit, if you will, all of those were gone. And then I turned it over to the sound crew. And uh, after 10 days, and we had no music. There's one musical cue in it which was the theme song of the television show within it, the Howard Beale show. And we mixed. But one of the things I think that's really important is it was a really small community. Yeah. You know, I mean, we, we used to have softball games and like 
you know, two teams were pretty much every editor. Every editor, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and we city, had, we had what, four mixing studios, I think. Uh, four or five, maybe. At the most. There were, there were Magno, few Trans Audio. Yeah, well, some of them had more than one studio. Right. But you had you know, a guy like Dick Vorsega, yeah, Al Grimalia, a couple of top mixers. And the other thing was, in California, mixers worked in groups of three. Right. You had a guy who did the dialogue, who was the chief mixer, a sound effects mixer who was at the other end of the console and the music mixer who was somewhere in the middle both symbolically and structurally <laughs> but in new york you had dick you had Al Grimalia. almost everybody worked on their own i mean still do further mag too i guess you yeah put in there. they they mix you know the consoles are now as big as this room i exaggerate only slightly dick's console had eight knobs eight big he had big hands, too. But eight knobs, and it looked like something designed by Cedric Gibbons for MGM. It, it was very futuristic. But it really wasn't much bigger than this table, no. you know, in terms of length. You could reach it. Yeah. Know, I mean, Dick could reach it pretty much by himself from one end to the other. And actually, when they were tearing out his studio after the business was sold, I happened to be walking by with the new owner, and I asked if I could have the plaque from that console, which I had framed and gave to Dick, because nobody would have wanted it. I, you know, I wish I had it now, <laughs> just as a souvenir. You, you talk about a small community. What, when Alan was cutting 12 chairs, it was 1970. My daughter was just born. And I remember coming up, Harvey worked on that film, Harvey Rosenstock. I remember Indeed. taking my, my six-month-old daughter to the cutting room. And I walk into the cutting room, and. Mel Brooks sees a baby and he goes, a baby? He says, can I? And he takes Jennifer and he does 20 minutes on a baby. And we were laughing so hard it hurt, you know? Yeah. yeah. I then took Jennifer into the cutting room down the hall, which was Steve Rodder's cutting room. And I, and I said, Steve, let me borrow your table for a minute. And I changed my her diaper on his table because I knew it would drive him crazy. <laughs> But also in those days, if you were looking for a job, there were like three places you would go and you'd bring your resume. And, it, you know, I think we all would judge the people who were coming through based on how they put up with that kind of performance. Oh, there were no real resumes. Right. Oh, right. Yes. Well, Everybody knew wait a minute. Yeah. At 1600 Broadway, there were only a few places to work also in New York. Four buildings, basically. People worked in those four buildings. And because it was on film, there was often a lot of downtime in that you'd lose a trim and somebody would have to dig into a film barrel and find the piece of film. Coppola used to have a, up in San Francisco, they would have kind of a film Olympics <laughs> where they would time how long it took for somebody to find a trim in the bottom of the barrel or how far you could get when you spun a synchronizer. When you spun a synchronizer. But, um, we all sort of knew each other, and there was a lot of downtime. So your, your door would be open, and people would pop in, and you'd chat, and you'd go down the hall with you or off, and, you know. I remember popping in on Steve Rodder a couple of times, and he'd always have the cigarette dangling out of his mouth, and he'd look at me, hey, Mikey, how you doing? And then as soon as he started to answer me, he turned back to the movie hole and started to work again. <laughs> Smoke billowing. Well, and the cutting room was pretty much always open when... when yeah. People would come in and then tell stories. And There's a lot of practical joking, too. I mean, yes. um, yes. Michael once took apart my entire 
set up on my desk so that when I went to work, the That's rewinds, what I remember the rewinds fell over. Every, like the, the and we put uh, shaving cream in people's headphones and, it was and a then much stand more, behind yeah. the moviola and hum. It that was one of the big ones. Like if somebody had their headphones on, you'd stand behind them and you go, hmm. <laughs> it was a more leisurely atmosphere then because it took longer to do certain things. Like the editor would assemble a cut and then take a break while uh, an assistant would maybe put all the splices in. Like the editor that I learned to work with assembled everything with paper clips. He would look at something, he'd put it together with paper clips, and then he would turn it over to us for, for I, a splice. I think in. that was me. Uh, Evan used to do that. Too. That was me on that one. Yeah, Evan did that. Yeah, so he would, they would make an assembly, and then he would be able to take a little break. You know, he'd look at a piece of film, he'd know where to cut it, and then he would basically put it together. You know, not permanently. You couldn't run it through a moviola with paper clips in it. No. So he'd have a handle me, usually too, yeah. or whatever. Yeah. So he'd hand it to me. You know, like a roll of film with a bunch of paper clips in it, and I would then basically take it and splice it all together. With, with actual tape. Yeah, I always regarded film as, as a, a plastic medium, like like steel or something that you could bend. I mean, this was in my head, but you could bend it to a certain degree. You could push it to a certain degree. If you went too far, it would symbolically break, and you'd have to go back and fix it and take it apart. And people could see your marks on it, could see where they were taped, and then where your mistakes were. So you tried to avoid that as much as possible. And uh, editing digitally, there are no marks. It's it's uh, you leave no marks behind. <laughs> yeah, we it, we actually had marks because if you yeah. opened the splice in, in the analog, the digital, yeah, you you took the emotion off. You got what was called the greenie. That you know? too, yeah. So you you know you, you really had to think twice before you made a cut because if you if you wanted to extend it. And then you had to open the splice up. You didn't want to have a greenie. You didn't want to have a whole <laughs> reel of, of greenies that that would show that you didn't know well, what you were doing. You know, so it was. It you could you could also hear them go th going through the gate right. uh, in the projection room or in, on the movieola. You could hear the splices go through, mm. so you knew when something sounded like a battle scene. It had been really worked hard. What was interesting uh, though, network Didi we didn't have much of that. Didi would always cut. And then take it apart, and then recut and take it apart. And I remember like taking uh, for the emulsion sharpies and, and coloring in the emulsion, so it wouldn't have a flash of green. It was sort of like a dull, muted, blackish greens would go by, and when we would would screen the stuff. But um, that that's that's the process. I mean, that's you know that's what we were dealing yeah. with at the time. It's probably why God invented digital. You were talking about greenies. Didi, near the end of uh, the film. Time, she would make a black and white dupe yeah. right. and cut the black and white dupe right. rather than cut. Yeah. Well, originally the splices were full frame. Then they became sort of half frame right. and kind of much more quarter frame. When I worked for Dee Dee on Paul Newman's film, Rachel, Rachel, right. the first thing we did was order every splicer ever made just oh, to, test. to test. test the we tested. And you, like, we had yeah. to degauss them with that big machine because they would create pops in the magnetic track. That's, there were so many more elements that could happen. Like I, I did, a, I was assistant on a Gordon Willis film. And it was the first time that he directed, and somebody else shot. And Gordon Willis was a kind of DP that he would tell the lab, Otto Polony, to these are the numbers that I want you to develop at, and then he would those numbers would be consistent through the whole film. I mean, he was very specific. That was the film that, when he was mixing it, he walked into Dick well, Forsyth's <laughs> studio and he and walked up to the screen, and Dick was a smoker, and the screen had a patina of nicotine. And Gordy, you know, said, oh, 
this is great. <laughs> I mean, most people yeah, well, want the screen to be white so it reflects. But on this particular, this is just about craft and about like how particular the world was that in the sense that, that there was no givens, you know, like it was really hard to figure if something went wrong, there was a scientific reason that wasn't really thought through, like solving greenies, for instance, they, they finally solved greenies so that the emulsion didn't pull off the, the film. But in this particular case, the film was all over the place after it got developed and Gordy was freaking out over it because that doesn't happen on his films. And so we ended up sending a test. I, I think my eyesight has been diminished because of this. We ended up sending a test to 10 different labs around the world of the film to, to have them de develop the negative and see what happened. And he eventually figured out that they, they had taken some of the silver out of the stock without telling him and that that had changed. The Kodak had done that? Yeah, the or? Kodak had done huh. that. And, and, and I mean, the kind of, like, I remember Kodak sent a representative who died in a plane accident from Chicago, and Gordy's answer was, like, send another guy. <laughs> I mean, that, but that was, you know, well, it was very specific. And directors had a lot of respect, uh, got a lot of respect from the, the California people until it budgetarily became impossible for them to leave us alone. I remember sound crews tended to get out of hand no offense. Uh, <laughs> but you'd get a lot of people and they'd be covering themselves by putting in extra sound effects in case you didn't like this potato chip, they had a different potato chip crackle. And the studios were going crazy because they couldn't control the budgets that were happening here. So they demanded first that sound work be finished out there. Mm -hmm. And then they started pulling picture back there too. It was around that time that New York the New York film business also seemed to like be losing more work to LA. Like studios started to exert more control over everything. And Alan talking about different sounds for potato chips, you know, it came a lot out of Dee Dee's, you know, I want to see two or three different sounds because I want the director to have options. Like the reason why Dee Dee made so many edits is because she was editing to please the director. You know, how do you like this one? Oh, how about this one? You know, how would you like to see this? You know, we want to hear this gunshot or that wind effect or whatever, um, because you wanted to give the director as many options as possible. She had something called lift and lift, which when you were assisting her, she'd say L-E-L that, and you'd have to put a grease mark pencil with an L at the top and an E-L at the bottom, because you'd put it into a box with a mark on it saying, this is the way the cut once was. And so she would lift this thing out if she ever wanted to put it back, like if the director said, I'm not certain, she'd go, oh, I can put this piece back in, and it would have the whole different you know, shift in the emotion of the scene by just having that one little... Yeah. And also I think that that organization was her way of... I think it expanded films, too. It no yes. longer was a first choice kind of thing where the speed and the organization... Like I always say, even now on, on Avid's, I tell my assistants that the setup is as important as, as the cutting of the film. Yeah, you get, it makes you know the film. It makes you know the footage. So that you can, you can come up with more options and that you have more you know choices when when you're putting something together you know the scene can take on a whole different meaning just with one edit the thing about sydney was his efficiency his you know he was so specific he used his experience in television to be the most efficient director that you could have i mean they were jokes that just the fact that somebody would say, oh, Sidney would get a cut of what he saved on the budget. 
That, that's indicative of how efficient he was. I remember sitting the, the Howard, the, the scene with the thunder. Yeah. At the, the mix. Sydney, yeah. No, 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 mix. I ran the reel with you and Sydney, and Sydney was, I want a clap here, a clap there. Oh, yeah, it was, no, that, yeah. Yeah, I he was very yeah, yeah. precise. Yeah. And what was refreshing was that he wasn't wishy-washy later, you know. It was like if you gave him what he asked for, he was he was happy, you know. Oh, sure. I mean, yeah. No, he was not an unreasonable No, he was, yeah, but he was a decision maker. He I mean, was, yes. He was definitely a decision maker. Yes. He was quick. Yeah. yeah. And as I said earlier, that that was the the most important thing I learned from that and projectionist error. The, <laughs> the idea of just making a decision and living with the decision, at least for a while. You know, when I worked on hair, and I only worked on one scene on hair, people seemed to feel I was the editor. I was not. We would be preparing to record something for uh, Milos for a temporary recording. Again, this was on film, so you didn't have the ability uh, that we have now on electronic editing to put in tons of sound effects. You had a very limited number of tracks. But we would be preparing something, and the apprentice would come down and say, no, take it off the machines. Milos wants to make more changes. And so, you know, you'd start out at 10 in the morning ready to go. By 11, you were set up to go. And then by 12, Milos would want to make other changes. Sidney never did that. You know, he just went with, with what, what he got, which was mostly wonderful. There was one scene uh, with, uh, let's see, Faye and uh, Bill Holden in the apartment, and there was a close-up about this big of Bill Holden against the staircase. Uh, it was a duplex apartment. And he did his performance. Next day we saw the dailies, and I called Sydney immediately at noon you know, when I saw the dailies. And I said, you know, the focus is off on Bill Holden, and all of the focus is on the brass banister. <laughs> behind him. And Sidney said, oh, well, don't, let's not worry about it. I said, Sidney, maybe you want to look at it at lunchtime. I can run over the, when you guys break, we can just take a quick look at it. And we were shooting at the MGM building on 6th Avenue, which had a lot of empty offices in it. And uh, we set up a projector somewhere. I guess it was a screening room in the building, sure. And we screened it. And Sidney sort of put his arm around me. He tended to do that. And he would say, don't worry about it. You know, nobody's, I said, well, Sidney, why don't you just reshoot it? And he said, I, I could never get Bill to do that performance again. And he may be right, and the cut is in the movie, and I don't notice it anymore, but I sure did notice it when I was <laughs> cutting the movie. But that was the only, I don't know if you'd call it a mistake, but that was, that was I mean, Sidney really cared for the actors. He wouldn't make them do things, except he loved to have Faye Dunaway eat. <laughs> and there was a scene where she was, eating a sandwich, and he just kept doing take after take. And at one point in the dailies, I think she said, Sidney, can, can I stop eating? But he loved that. And early in the shoot, Sidney and I were going over to screen the dailies from my cutting room. And in my cutting room, just before leaving, Sidney said they were thinking of replacing Faye. And I don't know if I've ever told this before, at least in public. And I said, why? Why would you replace her? He said, well, she's stumbling over words. Well, that had to do with Patty, because he was very precise, and he was on the set all the time. Because actors often like to change the script for whatever reason. Maybe 
comes with the territory of being an actor. You just want to have more influence. But in this case, I said, why, why would you replace her? He said, well, she's stumbling over the words. And I said, who will you replace her with? And, and he told me, and, and I thought that was a very poor idea, and I just won't mention who that was. But I said, you know, Sydney, she brings enormous energy to this. Well, I'll think about it. And then they didn't fire her. So I feel <laughs> I feel I had a little hand in, in keeping her, at keeping the movie what it was. She, she, I mean, Alan really did help make her performance continuous yeah. in, in terms of if she stumbled over a word, he would find a place where he could make an edit so that it wasn't an awkward edit. And he would make a performance out of, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but did she say to you after she won the Academy Award, thank you because I know I never got through a line of dialogue? Absolutely not. <laughs> I think she did. Well, it happened under other circumstances. I remember there was a lot of, uh, there were a lot of takes where Faye Dunaway would get sort of through most of Patty's dialogue, but then it's a mouthful and she would stumble and, and Alan ended up putting together a pretty smooth Academy Award winning performance. And Network was one of the first real examples of how dialogue can be manipulated to do what you want it to do. Mm. And so, yes, there were great performances, but you know, a lot has to do with how those lines are put together and what happens, so. Yeah, I won't deny that. Yeah. It just came so easily, because Sidney, he got great performances. There, um, there's a scene in the movie with William Holden. As I remember it, it's the scene after he kicks the book he's writing, and it all flies through the eyes, and nobody wants that goddamn scene about a goddamn retired newsman. And, and she's in the kitchen. She's come down from the kitchen. And they're pretty much on the verge. And he comes up to her in a, in a big close-up, and he starts a long speech, a really long speech. And I stayed on the speech as long as I possibly could. And then he, uh, he went up. He just flubbed the line at that point. Well, there were two places in the scene that I went to Faye. One was because I wanted to see Faye's face at a certain point. And the second time was I had to cover this. I had to go from one take to another. And there were only, I think, two takes, maybe three, though I doubt it. Sydney often did only one take, quite a bit, not all the time. But three takes was a lot for Sydney. a lot. And... Uh, Years later, I was doing a film with Dustin Hoffman, and we were waiting for the director, and people come to Daly's. And so I asked Dustin how he found working with Sidney Lumet, because Dustin really cares about his character, and he gets deep into the character. And I said, so how did you work with Sidney Lumet, who just doesn't give you the freedom to do take after take and, and work your acting things out? It was a film about a heist. No, family, a family business. It was okay. family yeah. business, yeah. And uh, it was Sean Connery and... Matthew Broderick. Matthew Broderick, who Dustin kept referring to as the kid in this discussion we were having. And he said, I said, so how did you deal with it? How did you deal with Sidney's desire not to spend a lot of time on the set? And he said, look, Sean Connery wanted to go play golf every afternoon at 3 o'clock. The kid... I figure he doesn't know what he's doing. But, <laughs> and it doesn't really matter. And I spent a couple of days trying to get them to do the right thing. 
And then I realized I was not going to sway any of them. So I just did whatever Sidney wanted me to do. But he's uh, also famous. Wasn't he famous for locking it down in rehearsal? Like he would let you have some, he would rehearse and rehearse and rehearse, which nobody gets to do anymore. And then he would lock it down. And then on the set, you had to do what? Sidney? Yeah. He rehearsed what? his actors. I mean, I, I was fortunate enough to spend a week on uh, Last of the Mobile Hot Shots, two weeks of rehearsing. They would rent a room and, much like a stage play, block it out with tape on the floor. Uh, first, there was a table reading, and this was a Gore Vidal had written the script, so I, I wasn't a kid, but I was in awe of all these people. So we do a table read, they do a table read, and I was there just listening and, and being in, in the process, because setting up a cutting room took a while. And you know, my assistants would be setting up a room somewhere, and I, I went to these rehearsals. And then uh, you know, the second day, they'd have the tape. First the table read, then they'd have the tape. So the actors were blocked by the third day. And then they'd bring furniture in, so they wouldn't knock into the furniture. And so they rehearsed for several days. And now they, you don't get that rehearsal. So they knew their lines. And yeah, Sydney would let actors change things, but... Uh, but the one thing, and kind of when you wrote me about this, this idea of doing this, I, I went back and looked at some of the material I had seen about the film over the years that Patty actually, Patty Chesky actually had letters and, and um, an accumulation of ephemera that he had saved that was given to the New York Public Library about the film, dating back to him starting to write it in the early yeah. 70s. And so, so the papers kind of ruminate on all the ways that he went, you know, all the ideas that he went through to get to the final script. So the idea of him being firm and clear about what he wanted seems very, very poignant in that, you know, and yeah. based on, you know, how we got there. Well, you know, talking about Patty's perfectionism, when, when Patty did The Goddess uh, here in New York, the film was taken away from him by the studio. Carl Lerner was the editor, and at some point, the studio kicked everybody off. I don't know about Carl, but they did. They finished the film without Patty, and he said, "I will not sell any more scripts to studios unless I'm the producer of the film." So, he and his partner Howard Gottfried were the producers of Network, and Patty was on the set every day, and then one day. We got the dailies for uh, Beatrice Strait's scene in the movie, and Beatrice, who played uh, Bill Holden's wife, was mostly a stage actress, and I'm not sure she had ever been in a movie before. I really don't know. But in her wonderful scene that starts in the kitchen, goes into the living room, and is, uh, oh, it's about two and a half, three minutes long. That's almost all she does in the movie. She wakes up Howard once, and I think that's about it. And she got an Academy Award nomination, and she got an Academy she Award won. for that. She won the Academy Award. Anyway, when she did that scene, she said to Bill Holden, the line was, is that what's left for me as you sink into your emeritus years? And she said, emeritus. <laughs> so, that night at the dailies, I said to uh, Sydney, you know, and to Patty, I said, 
what's with this emeritus? And Sydney said, well, that's another pronunciation of it. Because Sydney was like that. So I used to keep a dictionary in my cutting room for things just like this. And he said, that's the alternate pronunciation. I said, no, it's not. And I showed him there was no alternate pronunciation for it. At which point, Patty joined in. And I said to Patty, how come you didn't correct it on the set? He said, frankly, I never heard it pronounced before. Which is very possible. You know, my theory about Patty, he was a brilliant, brilliant writer, but he was a poet and a polemicist. Not so much, I mean, he was a good playwright, really good playwright, but he wrote the same kind of thing. The hospital has a similar theme of a small man fighting a very big machine. And Altered States, his next movie, which he left, because they were taking the film away from him, the director was, and I, to this day, I don't know why they didn't hire Sidney. Supposedly, there was some discrepancy over money. Knowing Howard Gottfried, I believe that could be a discrepancy over money. But instead, they hired a very florid director, British director. But, but what happened was, uh, at that point, Patty walked away from the film, his producer stayed on, and they never spoke again after that. Hmm. They, they, they had a long relationship, but, uh, you know, Patty was protective of the words, as, as was I in cutting the movie. I mean, I knew what was there. We only cut the beginning of a scene, the, the scene in Hollywood, which was, by the way, shot on Long Island with the Long Island Expressway in the background. Sidney hated going to California. He was very proud that he could do L.A. here, but he they could, couldn't do New yeah, York there. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, he loved New York. Well, he lived here, he loved it here. He liked everybody here, though he worked with cameramen from other places, but he liked the whole atmosphere of working in New York. He could work his way around very quickly. For one thing, um, we, we didn't have studio interference, we didn't have screenings, in my experience, until sometime maybe in the late 70s for me. But the films I did in New York, we'd screen for friends. Sydney would run it for, you know, 50 people, 100 people, maybe less, maybe fewer. We didn't give out cards. We talked with people afterwards. Fosse, we screened for a dozen people at a time, maybe, and twice, you know, we never screened. We took notes. I mean, we, we talked to our friends afterwards. We had a drink, we talked, but we didn't necessarily do what they wanted. And, and I, I remember vividly on all that jazz, the heart surgery scene, we were going to show the film, the first five reels, to Dan Meldick, who was a producer of that film. And Danny came in from California. We showed him the first five reels. And he loved the first five reels. And he left, and I turned to Bob, and Bob turned to me, and we said, okay, now we can put back the scene where they actually open the heart. Because we didn't want him to see that. We knew he'd raise an issue about that. Everything else was fine. And we put it back in. We never touched it again. You know, people would walk out of the theater, and, and I mentioned it to Fazio. I said, well, we reached them, you know. And it's hard to reach people when you're making a movie. It's not like a stage play where you can bounce as an actor. You can uh, feel the audience and their response. You know, to get a response, from an audience and, and feel that it's real. What I find valuable when you do a test screening is to feel the audience rather than read the cards. Sometimes you get information from the cards. 
sometimes you can solve major problems. But the films I did in New York, we just didn't do them. I don't know about you I, guys. Did I, you have I, test screenings? We, we, I had one, uh, an experience on a film, uh, A Thousand Clowns, in the 60s, that, oh. that Herb wanted to screen it. It was comedy, and uh, we prepared for a screening that we had on Long Island. But it it wasn't a studio screening, no, and it wasn't right. a screening with with cards. We, it it was really to see, to hear the audience's response, and to and to yeah. tailor that. But I, I think what was important about the New York scene in those days, they left us alone, mainly because we were far away, and the budgets of most of the films were not very large. But there was also a movement. I mean, like. French Connection. Yeah, in those days, it yes. created a movement. Taking Pelham one, two, three. French Connection. These were New York style films yeah. that were. We we didn't have post supervisors. In That's those right. Days. The editors were the post supervisors. Yeah, yeah. occasionally you had a, a producer that stayed with the project, and if he didn't stay with the project, then it was up to the editor to just kind of like keep yeah keep we things in, we in would time. arrange the looping sessions. We would arrange. We would book the mixes. We. Talk to the you lab. Know, or my assistant, yeah, my assistant would do it. Uh, or sometimes the director's assistant would take over that function. But we didn't have a big machine. The first time I had a post-supervisor, at first I thought, gee, what do we need this for? And then I, oh, this is wonderful. We don't, <laughs> you know, give it to them. Let them do it. Right. You know, I just, you know, you leave notes. <laughs> Being in the back room, I didn't experience... Um, we planned it that way. <laughs> no, but I didn't experience kind of the schedule as much. In the back room, you're always working. But like, I mean, did you have a typical 20, 24 weeks or did you have, do you remember that at all? Or, and did you work, I mean, you were never one to put in like 14 hour days. No, no, day. I was not. No, I still am not. Yeah. I think that was the usual 10 week director's cut. Mm -hmm. But in the case of network, we didn't do a 10-week cut. We did, you know, a two-week cut, turned it over to the sound people. The whole film took, from the beginning of shooting to the answer print, took five months. I remember that because I've never had that short a film schedule. And it partly is because of Sidney and, and the style that he brought to the set, the quick decisions, the knowing what he wanted to do, right or wrong. He was definitely one of those guys, right? It, it, he, he'd stand by his decision one way or the other. Well, there were a couple of things that happened, but one, one that particularly annoyed me, he had shot uh, the ending of the film where they assassinate Peter Finch. And I had an idea of where I wanted to go with it, but Sidney had shot a lot of material, and I always respect what the director shoots and try and figure out how to get certain things in. But in this case, I just couldn't make head or tail of it. And Sidney said to me, you know, I'm going to be shooting across the street in a vacant studio. I'm going to come over at lunch and we'll put that ending together. I said, great, okay. And this was a case where I really wanted him to stand over my shoulder and tell me what to do because I couldn't figure it out. Well, he came over my shoulder and he said, okay, this, 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 this. And I put it together in... 10 minutes, 12 minutes, 15 minutes, whatever it was. And I'm thinking, this is a mess. This is, is a dog's breakfast. This doesn't make any sense at all. And I ran it for Sydney, just as he had wanted it. He looked at it once, and he said, 
try it your way. And he walked out <laughs> and he never came back on that. And the other scene that, and it, it really annoyed me, the mad as hell scene, which everybody says is such a wonderful, and Sidney cut that over my shoulder. And I always felt I could make it a little bit better, but I didn't want to mess with it at that point because this was what Sidney wanted, you know, and, and it was good. I mean, the scene is very good. I, I can't deny that. It's a terrific scene. I think, uh, I feel I could have made it maybe a little better, but just a, you know, a smidge, or, or as Sidney would say, a gnat's hair. <laughs> but, you know, working with him was, uh, it was a remarkable experience because of the energy he brought to a project. Um, Sidney had the kind of energy where Alan would say, you have to stand on a shoelace to get his attention. So Sidney would make a decision. I never said that. <laughs> I like it, but I never said, he said that. It. You, you, you have to, he would make decisions, and Alan said earlier, it's not always the right ones, but you know, he, would, he was very decisive, so it was easier to move on. But um, I remember Sidney and Patty having to be separated at times for having differences of opinion you know, about the way things should be. <laughs> I don't really that remember like, that myself. But we did have to do a television version for certain scenes, most of which involved uh, Bobby Duval. Well, and also because there was a lot of talk. They said bullshit. Yeah. So bull oh, soup, yeah. Bull slop, bull, you know. Yeah. I think also when they aired it, they put the word shit back in for the one time on network television. It aired with the word That's... bullshit in because it looked so stupid when somebody said bull and soup, the word soup came out. Yeah. So what happened with... Uh, we were going to loop uh, Robert Duval at a studio on the east side of New York. And I showed up, and Bobby Duval shows up, and he's, he said, where's Sydney?" And I said, well, he said he's going to be here. I don't, I don't know. No idea. So uh, he said, what are my lines? So I gave him the script uh, for the TV versions, and there were, I remember specifically, one of the lines was, son of a bitch, and... Sidney had convinced Patty Chayefsky that it didn't matter, <laughs> that it absolutely did not matter what he said. So instead of son of a bitch, he had him write, or Patty wrote son of a gun, which really Sidney wrote. And I knew, looking at this, that Duval was not going to do these lines. I just sensed it, that they were too casual. I mean, there's no way that you can replace son of a gun and son of a bitch. They're not equivalent. There are ways to do it, but you'd have to use different words. And so we get there. I, I finally, I hand Duval the script. And I really didn't want to hand him the script. I knew there was going to be some trouble. And he started reading it, and you could see smoke was coming out of his ears. He was not a happy man. And he said, who wrote this shit? And I said, oh, Patty. <laughs> and he said, you know, get me Sydney." Well, I couldn't read Sidney. Sidney had no intention of ever coming to that session. I know that. So I got Howard Godfrey, the producer. And Howard was a very dapper guy. He wore beautiful double-breasted blazers and a necktie and, and uh, striped shirts. He was a very elegant guy. And Duval was sitting there just, you know, waiting and getting angrier and angrier. And we were in a small room outside the studio, waiting for the elevator door to open. Well, the door opened and out came Howard, and he said, Bobby, what's the problem? And Duval got up, and he, he said, I'm not going to say this. Shit. And he ripped up the paper, threw it at Howard, ignoring his hand, and made for the elevator. He had, he had timed his exit, but 
The elevator doors had closed, so he made for the staircase, and he just got the hell out of there. Bullshit was Howard Beale's line. He said it seven times. And they never gave us permission. I mean, we never did loop that. So I cut, a, I cut them all into bull, just plain bull. And then the network gave us back the first one, ABC. I, what? You know, but, but this was a year later. I didn't know what was going to go on with it. And I cut around all of Duvall's other stuff for the TV release. Uh, it was much better than Son of a Gun, I'll tell you that. But again, Sydney, my memory is uh, no director likes to do TV versions. I asked Sydney once on the ne on network, we were going over to Daly's. Uh, to screen at the lab, and I said, uh, how do you pick your movie, Sydney? Because at this point, this was my third movie with Sydney. I said, you do so many films, how do you pick your movies? And he held up his hand like this, and he said, look, you do five films, and one film is going to be terrible, and one film is going to be very good, and the other three films are going to be average. Because what's really important is to just keep working great lesson. I mean, he was right. I mean, I tell that to a lot of editors who want to go from doing reality television to scripted films, really, without the television thing even in between. They'd like to go right to doing feature films. And it's not a big deal. It's just hard to do. But the thing is, you got to keep working. And that's what I tell them. Just keep whatever the job is, you take the job as long as you're getting union protection, union wages, make friends, make contacts, and things happen, or not. Mm -hmm. But it's your life, you know, you have to work with it. Sidney was, he was very good with that. I called Sidney the morning of the Academy Award announcements and to congratulate him on, on the nomination for Best Directing and the film. But I think there were 12 nominations on the film. And, and imagine my surprise when it got all that Academy Award attention. I mean, I knew Patty would get nominated, and I figured Sidney would. But uh, cinematography, editing, I, it was never on my particular radar. I thought the performances were great. It's so current. It's so much about, there was so much anger that, that Patty had that, that kind of, you know, runs through that film. He thought that what was happening in television was was horrible at the time, you know, and it was just beginning to go in that in, in that direction. And then, um, you know, he, he kind of just took off with it. But evidently the newscasters like Walter Cronkite and other people complained afterward that they thought he was unfairly a attacking the, the, media, the news media and that his explanation after the fact was something to the effect of that he was actually talking about the bigger structure of American corporations and how they work, that he wasn't necessarily just talking about the media, per se. I remember one of the Academy Award things, um, the guy who wrote Social Network, Aaron Sorkin. Aaron, Aaron Sorkin, said that other than George Orwell, no one has been as prophetic about what was going to happen in the future as Patty Chesky. So. Again, when I looked the network up, it had a budget of $3.8 million. Really? Back in... The 70s, 76, or 76. 76 so release, yeah. the, the film really holds up, and it, it made me think a lot about. I work a lot on independent films now, and it it made me think a lot about the fact that that movie could be made today. It would probably cost the same amount. <laughs> I mean, it would probably as, be an, made, independent as an independent film would probably 
No, the, the film is incredible, prescient, incredibly prescient, yeah. and, and you know we are living it today uh, on different levels, and that amazes. Stay tuned for the upcoming episode of Frame by Frame, which tells the story of New York's Sound One. This episode of Frame by Frame was produced by Isabel Sederni and Ben Baker. The sound engineer was Dave Stark. In New York, I'm Isabel Sederni, and this is Frame by Frame.